Welcome to the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association's podcast. In Mark 16:15, Jesus says, "Go throughout the whole world and preach the gospel to every person." This Bible teaching was given in the Tabernacle in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. Visit oceangrove.org to learn how we are fulfilling our mission to provide people of all ages with opportunities for spiritual birth, growth, and renewal through worship, educational, cultural, and recreational programs at the Jersey Shore. This week we've had the blessing of Dr. Jessica Legrone coming and leading us here at Bible Hour. She is Dean of the Chapel at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. She is an acclaimed pastor, teacher, speaker, and writer whose engaging communication style endears her to her groups throughout the United States. She'll be doing a book signing tomorrow after Bible Hour in the Hub. And without no more delay, we please help me give a warm Ocean Grove welcome to Dr. Jessica Legrone. Well, thank you so much. Um, it is, again, our joy to be here with you this week. Um, I prayed for you in the tents last night. I thought about you as the wind whipped through. I was hoping they didn't turn into aircraft overnight, um, but it's good to see you here this morning. I want to thank you, too, for singing, um, and can it be, that Charles Wesley hymn. Uh, is the, it's the hymn of the seminary where I work, and um, we, we affectionately call it our fight song. You know, schools, schools that have, you know, teams, rah, rah, our, our team is Jesus, so we sing And Can It Be with great gusto, and especially my chains fell off, my heart was free to hear a room full of future pastors and missionaries and counselors and youth pastors singing that is, um, I can't even tell you, and so it means so much to sing it here with you today. Well, we have been on an adventure this week. Um, our theme has been Two to Tango. Uh, we're not having dance lessons, we're having Bible lessons, so we're talking about how the Bible passages dance with each other. And today I want to talk to you about uh, remakes. Remakes. So uh, some of our favorite stories get told again and again, don't they? And you just have to look at what they're playing at the movie theaters to learn that, boy, the movie producers have picked up on the fact that we don't mind hearing a story once or twice or many times. I put up the, um, the, the poster for West Side Story here that was a favorite for many years, and then it was just remade by Steven Spielberg these last couple of years, a really beautiful production of West Side Story. My kids love musicals, and so uh, we watched the original, and then we watched the remake my daughter is still sad at the end. She keeps wishing it had a happy ending. It doesn't have a happy ending even when you remake it. But the truth is West Side Story is actually a remake itself of Romeo and Juliet. And so that story didn't have a happy ending. So you have to predict that's how it'll come out. But others in the last few years, Dune, an old kind of sci-fi-ish movie, and A Star is Born got remade in the last few years. Um, if you tell someone that you really enjoyed the movie version of Little Women, they might not know which one you're talking about. Was it 2019, 1994, 2017, or 1933? Those are all years that someone made Little Women. So good stories get retold, right? If you say you love the movie version of Little Women, somebody might say, well, was Joe played by Winona Ryder or Katherine Hepburn? Both of those actresses, the same one. So if a particular story is really important to us, then when it gets retold, we are very protective of it, aren't we? 
don't tell my story the wrong way. This happens in our house because if a, a movie comes out based on a book, we require our kids to read the book first. The book is always better. And so often when we're watching a movie after they've read the book, there's somehow a surprisingly loyal and disgruntled preteen yelling at the screen. That's not how it went in the book. <laughs> well, today um, in the Bible, we're going to talk about a biblical story that is a remake. Gets made twice. And some of the details will seem familiar. You'll be able to hear how it's a, a story being told again. But some of it will have us shouting, that's not how the story goes. Uh, we need to remember that stories are given in relationship to each other in the Bible to add to the meaning of those stories. So we've talked about um, how you might find some of these tango connections. Somebody shared with me this morning they found a Markin sandwich when they were reading what we talked about the other day. Um, if you have a cross-reference Bible, you can find these connections, these dances, in that little column, stop, slow down in your Bible reading. Don't think that the goal is to get through the Bible, but to get the Bible through you. So slow down and look up some of those cross-references. How are these things connected? Sometimes it'll be words or themes. Sometimes you'll recognize how those stories are connected. And ask yourself, what is God doing here by connecting all these little passages? Uh, we recognize that this is a map someone made. It's on openbible.info. Genesis on the left, Revelation on the right, all those little threads are connecting pieces throughout the Bible. So um, Bible scholars find these. You are a Bible scholar. You can find these things. And then we said that one of the definitions of uh, sort of the million-dollar word for what we're talking about is intertextuality, that one text's meaning is shaped by another. So it's not just, um, oh, I recognize sort of an echo here. It's that the meaning is being shaped by being connected somewhere else. So, are you ready for our remake story this morning? Yes. All right. Well, one day, Jesus was with a group of Pharisees and scribes, and they were grumbling to him. They were complaining about just how often he sat with tax collectors and sinners, Right, these two groups are polar opposites. The Pharisees and scribes look down on the tax collectors and sinners. How dare Jesus hang out with those people? I mean, he even ate with them. And they're arguing, and their process is to argue and have someone argue back. But instead of arguing back, Jesus tells a story. And it was a good one. It's a remake. It was one they would recognize as one of Israel's favorite stories, and the people of Israel loved to t hear their stories retold. They'd say things like, oh, remember that one where we walked right through the Red Sea, and then Pharaoh and his chariots drowned? That's a good story. Tell that one again. Or they would say, remember that one where we, we walked around the huge city seven times and blew trumpets and shouted and the walls fell down? Now that's a good story. Tell that story again. So here comes Jesus with one of their favorite stories. They love these because they're always the underdog, and with God, they always come out on top. Israel is nurtured by its stories. So Jesus begins, and he's telling one of their favorites. There once was a man who had two sons, an older son and a younger son. And the younger son did something scandalous. And through his treachery, he made off with his inheritance, and he left town, 
and he ran away to a far country. Does this sound familiar to you? Now, remember when we said that biblical stories, when they come back again, it's a little bit like playing Name That Tune. Just a few notes, and the scribes and Pharisees listening, it would have rung a bell for them. It would have said, here's a tune I recognize. They would have said, wait a minute, I know this story. But to them, they would say, this is the story of Jacob and Esau. The story from Genesis of Jacob and Esau. That rascal Jacob the younger brother. He swindles his brother out of his birthright, and he tricks his older brother Esau. They're twins, but Esau still got out first. So he tricks him into trading a bowl of food for their entire birthright. What Esau had as a right to inherit because he's the oldest, Jacob tricks him and takes away the birthright, meaning he will inherit the vast majority of the land. And then Jacob, that trickster, he had the audacity to trick his father, his blind father, who was on his deathbed at this point. Well, they thought he was dying. He ended up outliving that anyway. He tricked his father into giving away the blessing in their family, what was also rightfully his brother's. And does it get any lower than tricking your blind and dying father to get what you want? I don't think so. Jacob is known in Scripture in the Old Testament as being kind of a, um, a figure who is taking what's not his. In fact, his name, Jacob, means grabby. When he was born, he was grabbing onto his brother's heel. And so they just named him Grabby. They named his brother Harry. So, I mean, that tells you how much thought they put into it. Esau is the word for Harry. So when he takes what is rightfully his brother's, first the birthright, by tricking him, trading him a bowl of food, and then the blessing by tricking his blind, dying father. When this happens, Jacob has got to run away. And the reason he's got to run away is Esau is much stronger, much hairier, and able to take him out. And they are always worried in this family that another Cain and Abel will happen, right? So, you know, we're worried that Esau will murder Jacob for what he's done. So Jacob has to run away after he has taken these things, not his, he has to run away to the far country. What a great story they're saying. I can't wait to hear it again. But as Jesus is telling this story, the story that they love, they begin hearing Jesus change the details of the story. That's not the way it goes, they would have said. Jesus, you're getting the details all wrong. You even have the characters mixed up. So let's hear how Jesus told this story. Here we are in Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 11. This is how Jesus begins the story, the story that they both recognize, but also he's changing the details of it as he goes. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of wealth that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. And a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant region. And there he squandered his wealth in dissolute living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that region. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that region who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. 
and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. Jesus' remake of this story has definite hints of the original story in it. If you were one of the listeners that day and heard Jesus telling it, really, it would have rung a bell of the Jacob and Esau story. Immediately, two brothers, you would have thought of the Jacob and Esau story. And both stories, here are some of the early beginnings that would have similarities to one another. One is that there is family betrayal. Now, it's a little harder for us to hear that in our culture when a son goes to his father and says, give me the share of the inheritance. Is that betrayal or is that a request? Is it like, dad, can I have five bucks to run to the store for something? No. No, this, in this culture and in this family, in their, um, their neighborhood and their community, this would have been shocking. No one did this. No one asked for their share of the inheritance. By prizing his inheritance over waiting for his father to die and give it, this son is actually saying, I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying. I wish you were dead. And so the younger son in Jesus' story is betraying his family by prizing his inheritance over his family. Now, Jacob's story, remember back in Genesis, the true story, the one that happened, Jacob's ultimate betrayal happens at his father's deathbed, and it is a deception that is so low down and dirty that to trick your elderly father who is blind and dying, it doesn't get any lower than that. What Jacob did to go into his father was to dress himself in the robes of his brother, his robes, his clothing, and to put on goat skin so he appeared to be hairy, right? So his father would touch him and feel his clothes and assume that he was his brother in his brother's robe. So here we have a younger son's act of treachery against the father, and then the younger son runs away. In Jacob and Esau's story, Jacob has to get out of town because his brother is coming for him when he finds out. But in the prodigal son's story that Jesus tells, the younger son takes that inheritance and runs off to the city, doesn't he? He goes to a far land to spend it. In both of the stories, when the younger sons get away, they end up caring for livestock. In Jacob's story in uh, the Old Testament, in Genesis, Jacob ends up meeting up with his uncle Laban, marrying his cousin, which evidently was fine in Genesis. And um, he is caring for livestock. He's caring for goats in the Old Testament. In the prodigal son story in the New Testament, he also cares for livestock. We find out he cares for what animal? Pigs. Now, if you read through the Old Testament laws and find out that was unclean, he would have been um, spiritually unclean, ritually unclean. He wouldn't have been able to approach his own people because he had been with pigs. Also, he is so desperate, he wants to eat what the pigs eat. Some of you know what pigs eat, and that is not a pretty picture. So in both of these stories, the, the boys end up caring for livestock. For both of them, their adventures in the far country are not what they had hoped not they, what they had planned for. Uh, Jacob ends up spending so long there that he acquires multiple wives, multiple children, lots of livestock, but he's not content. 
he wishes to go back to where he's from. The thing keeping him from going back to where he's from is the broken relationships with his family and the fear of his brother getting back at him for what he's done. In the prodigal son story, we know that story, the son runs out of money. And living, you know, kind of off of this money in a way that his family would not have wanted turns out not to be so fun after all. When he loses his money, he loses his friends, and he wishes that he could go home. And wish to return home, and both of them are um, longing for home, but their wish to return home is complicated by the broken relationships. As we mentioned in uh, the prodigal son story, the son approaching the father and saying, give me my inheritance, would have been really a wish for the father's death. It would have been something that would have said, we, I wish that you were dead already. And that would not have just stayed within the family. The family were not the only ones who knew that. Communal living, kind of like living in a community where everybody's tent is right next to each other. People just know each other's business. No? That's my guess. I'm just guessing. No one's told me your business. But in Jacob's community, I'm sorry, in, the, in this community where they live close together, the prodigal's community, uh, the whole community would know that this son had wished for his father to be dead, taken his money, and gone away. And so he was an outcast to the community. He could not return to that community. So it's no wonder with seeing these connections that the scribes and the Pharisees who are listening to the story, they recognize. Do you recognize it now? They recognize Oh, Jesus must be telling the story of Jacob and Esau. Um, one discussion I read in the discussion of these stories and their connections went so far as to say, somebody said, well, Jesus plagiarized that story. He stole the story. Can God plagiarize? I'm not sure that the author and perfecter of all things can plagiarize. But if we can pick up on the connections, it's no wonder that the Pharisees and scribes picked up on the connections as well. And I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek when I say they would have been shocked by it because, um, if you can see in this picture, this is just a paintbrush with the paints mixing. This is something that rabbis did and do all the time. They take the existing stories of the people of Israel, and then when they retell them, they mix the details up a little bit to make a point. This was very acceptable in Jewish tradition and something rabbis did. And an American Jewish scholar named Jacob Neusner says that when rabbis tell stories, they're like artists. And they sometimes take the stories in scripture and use them like paints on a palette. Oh, I think I'll take the Jacob and Esau story. I think I'll take the Noah story. I'll take the Moses story. And then they use those like paints to paint a new story. This is entirely normal and acceptable. So the scribes and Pharisees would also have recognized Jesus is about to make a point by reshaping this story. One of the new hues that Jesus painted into the remake of the story was the shocking and public way in which the prodigal wished his father's death and shamed his family in order to divide up the assets. He would have had to sell the land in order to liquefy it, right? To liquidate it, get the assets and the money. You, you can't you know, go to the far country with land to buy things. So he had to sell that land to someone in the community. And it was also shameful to sell your family's land. 
So when he went into the community offering to sell his father's land to people that he had gained by wishing that his father was dead, you can believe that that community shamed him and that probably he didn't get the best price for it because they knew he was desperate for money. A scholar named Kenneth Bailey writes that when someone brought deep shame on their family, if they ever wanted to return to the community, when they were coming back to the community, they would have had to go through a kind of gauntlet. You know what a gauntlet is, right? Something that is challenging and dangerous, sort of a pilgrimage someone has to go through. Well, if you had shamed your family and you were coming back into a community, the villagers would meet you at the outskirts of the community. They would stand outside their tents, outside their doors, and they would yell and throw things at you. They would come out and break pots and break pieces of pottery in the symbolism of the broken relationships and broken community that you had caused. And then they would throw those pots and jars at the person returning. Can you believe it? Um, so the prodigal son in Jesus' story has a lot to be afraid of in order to return home. He's not only afraid of the reaction of his father, he's afraid of the reaction of his community. So this is one of the differences in the stories, right? The prodigal son in Jesus' story is afraid to face an angry father and an angry community. While Jacob, who's been living and marrying and having children and lots of livestock, he's afraid to come home to face a brother, isn't he? There's no real story about reconciliation with a father. It's the brother who has a beef with him, with Jacob. And when he is returning home, Jacob, this is the true story, the Genesis story, Jacob learns that his brother Esau is coming out to meet him. So he has a kind of gauntlet to pass through as well, doesn't he? There is the fear that this brother, after all these years, has held on to his murderous rage and that he could just take Jacob out as he re-enters. Not only is Esau marching out to meet him, he has 400 men with him. Now what does that sound like? A welcome party or a war party? Esau has 400 men with him. So here's Jacob. What does he do? Jacob, with all this wealth he's accumulated in his time away, well, the first thing he does is he spends the night alone with God. This is the story we get where Jacob wrestles with God. He actually lets go of the things he's grabbed onto. For the first time in his story, he releases his assets, goes away across a river for the night, and wrestles with God. That's a beautiful story. But the next thing he does as he's coming home, he thinks he'll send a little gift ahead to his brother just to show him his good intentions and that he wants to reconcile. Now, if I'm thinking family reconciliation gift, I'm thinking a little gift bag, a scented candle, some colorful tissue paper, maybe a nice card. I'm not sure Hallmark has one quite for the occasion. I betrayed our father and stole your birthright, but I'm coming home, surprise. No, that's not what Jacob has in mind. Jacob sends a gift ahead, and he says, nothing says, I'm sorry, I swindled you out of everything and shamed our family, like, here's the gift, 220 goats, 220 sheep, 30 camels and their colts, 50 head of cattle, and 30 donkeys. That's the gift to reconcile him to Esau. And he sends these things on ahead, and he... Um, 
is preparing to reconcile with his brother. So the brother, Jacob, who, remember his name means grabby, he has taken, he's trying to show that he is now in a posture where he's giving, where he's not um, taking things from his family, but giving. So this is where we get to the part of the story where Jesus is going to paint in his story. So let's read the Genesis story. This is from Genesis 33, verses 1 through 11. And this is where the story almost slows down into slow motion um, and tells it very slowly and carefully for us to get the picture. This is from Genesis 33, the story of Jacob and Esau. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Rachel and Leah and the two maids. He put the maids with their children in the front and Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph, that's his youngest, last of all, youngest so far. He himself went on ahead of them and then bowing himself to the ground seven times, that's a deep seven time bow, until he came near to his brother. What does Esau do? But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Can you picture that? Fell on his neck, embraced, put his face against his neck and wept and kissed him. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids drew near and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And finally, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Meaning all the gifts that came ahead, all of the animals that were presented to him. And Jacob answered, to find favor with my Lord. It's a present. I'm trying to say I'm sorry here. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please. If I find favor with you, then accept my present from my hand. For truly, I love this, to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Since you have received me with such favor, please accept the gift that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have everything I want. So he urged him and he took it. So Esau finally receives the gift. Isn't that a beautiful story? I've always loved this line that to see your face is like seeing the face of God, especially because Jacob just spent the night before wrestling with God. He has literally seen the face of God. So what we learn here is that reconciliation between human beings can be something that is a vessel for God's presence with us. Human forgiveness can usher us into the presence of God. So Jacob sends a gift, and he buys his way back, and he is able to win his way back into the heart of his brother. Now, let's turn back to Jesus' story, right? Because up to this point, there have been many similarities in the stories. Will there be anything different when the prodigal son returns home? Now, remember, this younger son has been away. He's wished his family his father dead. He shamed his family. He is expecting, as he comes to the edge of the town, he's expecting the gauntlet of neighbors yelling at him, berating him, breaking things to symbolize brokenness, throwing broken things at him. That's what he is expecting. He also doesn't know if his father will receive him, right? And so, like 
Jacob, in the old story, the prodigal begins to think, what can I offer? What gift do I have, right? I don't have a scented candle. What can I give my father, in this case, to say that I'm sorry? And the only thing he can think of is that he can be a servant. I don't deserve to be your son anymore, but I've come home to be your servant. So let's read the end of this story, Luke 15, and we're beginning with verse 17 here. Here's the son with the pigs. But when he came to his senses, there's another translation I love that says, when he came to himself, he he became himself again. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me like a servant. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, remember he's coming to the outskirts of town expecting to be shamed. He's far off. His father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. All right, there's one line shared between those two stories that is exactly how we know. One of the things that lets us know that Jesus is playing off of this old story because he's playing name that tune. He plays a little tune from the original story and people would absolutely recognize it. Hear this. Remember in Genesis, I talked about fell on his neck. All right. Esau ran to meet him. So the one you're asking forgiveness from runs out to meet you and embraced him. And Esau, the brother, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And then the prodigal son's story. Then he arose and came to his father, but when he was a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck and kissed him. The only two places in the Bible that that phrase is used, fell on his neck, are these two places. It's an idiom, right? It's a Hebrew idiom where, just like we would say, it's raining cats and dogs. You know, he didn't literally, like, land on somebody's neck, but he fell against him. He put his head down on his shoulder, on his neck, and he wept. Uh, In the first story, they weep together. So this is a beautiful, I, I have the second passage here in the King James because King James isn't afraid of a good Hebrew idiom. He will say fell on his neck. And some of the other translations are trying to help us understand that a little more. We don't say fall on his neck. So they'll say things like embraced and wept and kissed. And I love that this echo, Jesus is telling the story, name that tune. He is playing again this Jacob and Esau story so that people will see it. Um, These two pictures, this is the climax of both stories, is the reconciliation. But here are some places where um, there's continuing similarities and then some differences. There's a greeting between them. Uh, There's the phrase, fell on his neck. 
There's a robe in both stories, okay? So when we get a little further in the prodigal story, what the father says, bring me my best robe, kill the fatted calf. In the Jacob and Esau story, the robe is something that Jacob stole of his brothers, dressed himself in his brother's robe, and went into his father covered in skin, trying to imitate his brother. So Jacob had to steal his brother's best robe, but the father offers his own robe, the symbol of the father's acceptance and restoration into the identity of a son. There are gifts. Jacob comes with his arms full of gifts, like all of these cattle, all of these donkeys, all of these camels. The prodigal has nothing to give. He, he has run out of things. He comes empty. But what he finds is that the father's arms are full of gifts. The father says, bring me the robe, bring me the ring, kill the fatted calf. And when the, when the prodigal son tries to offer a gift, right, he's come rehearsing the story, just treat me like a servant, I will work it off, I will work for you, he never even gets those words out of his mouth. The father won't allow any hint of a transactional relationship. He doesn't want the son to think at all that he is earning his way back or can buy his love. The father does not allow the son, this is going to be a very important detail, to do anything to earn his love. Now, this story is being told to scribes and Pharisees who have spent their lives following the rules of God, following the law, because they believe it's the only way to earn their way into the graces of God. But Jesus is telling a story about a God who doesn't need anything from us. He wants our obedience. He wants our presence, but he doesn't require us to earn it. The Father himself earns it. There's shame in both stories. The Jacob story offers forgiveness at a cost of the one who's done wrong. Jacob pays for what he's done. But in the prodigal story, the father pays the cost and endures the shame that the son would have offered. And in both stories, there's running, isn't there? And it's not the running of the one coming home. It's the running of the one so glad to see you that they run out to meet you. So Esau runs to meet him. But here in the prodigal story that Jesus is telling, he's telling a story with a figure of a father who, he's a patriarch, he's the head of a family. They wore these long robes, they were very patriarchal, stately, and they did not run. To run was a childlike thing. A grown man did not run. This father literally hikes up his robes and runs, and he runs to meet the son so that the son doesn't have to walk alone past the village that would throw things at him and yell at him and shame him. The village is ready to produce shame for the prodigal son, but the father doesn't allow it. He shows his acceptance by going to the edge and bringing the son in. Before the village can shame the son, the father offers the ring and the robe and the fatted calf to say, this shame is done. Here is my acceptance and dignity of my son. Now, here is the passage that we uncover the real reason that Jesus wants to tell this story. Jesus is not telling this story to shame the scribes and the Pharisees or to show them that they're like the older brother and they need to get their act together. Jesus is painting a self-portrait in this story, isn't he? He actually paints himself. God paints himself into this story. While other rabbis would have taken an old story and repeated it and changed it and 
taught a lesson from it, Jesus actually becomes the lesson. He does what the Father in the story does. He's not only teaching grace, he is acting out grace of the role of a shockingly forgiving father who, even though his children would betray him, would run to where they are. That's the incarnation of Jesus coming to earth. Take the shame from them and offer them forgiveness and gifts. Now, while Jacob deceives his father and betrays his brother, the prodigal's father is not tricked. He knows exactly what's going on, right? The original father in the story was blind and he didn't quite know what happened. The father in the prodigal story knows exactly what happened. And this is true of God too. We never trick God. No matter if we think we can deceive God, we never deceive God. He understands precisely what's happening. He is neither physically blind nor in the dark. And the demand of the prodigal's father would have broken the father's heart. So while it's possible to betray God, it is not possible to deceive him, right? You have Jesus sitting at the Last Supper next to Judas, who's betraying him. Jesus absolutely knows what Judas is up to. So Jesus is basically saying at that Last Supper when he says to Judas, do what you have to do, or one whose hand is on this table will betray me. Jesus is saying, you can betray me, but you can never deceive me. You can't trick God. And so the father's eyes are open when the prodigal son betrays and leaves, but the father's eyes are also open when the prodigal turns to come back. He's fully aware of the son's betrayal and cost, but then he's looking, isn't he? We get this picture of a father sitting on a porch, maybe, looking, wondering what day his son will return and what day he can welcome him home. And then this father doesn't allow any transactional relationship. He will not allow the son to pay off his debt. He absolutely welcomes him, and it's never dependent on his worthiness. God paints himself into this story. Jesus is becoming the father in the story. And he knew that we would all have varying and complicated relationships with the idea of fathers. Even when God said, I am your heavenly father, he knew absolutely that humans would have a mixed relationship, good and bad with fathers. But what God is saying is, I'm the best father, the ultimate father, the heavenly father. Even if you've had a complicated relationship with a father, God's not saying I'm that. He's saying that should have been this. I am the one that comes to restore the identity. I am like this father in this story, this incredibly loving, radically sacrificing, always welcoming father. And what Jesus does when he retells the story is he adds a little postscript onto the end, and it's the story of the older brother, isn't it? We didn't read that part today, but when they come home, the older brother, he's not too happy about the father welcoming the son home. He says, I've been here working this whole time. What about me? You never gave me any of these things. So the father had to run out of the village to welcome the younger son, but the older son won't even come inside to the party. He won't even step into his own home to celebrate his brother. The father has to go outside against the social norms and the community, but the brother won't even come celebrate with the community. So this is an addition on Jesus's part that is brilliant, because remember who his audience is, the scribes and the Pharisees, those that have been faithfully serving God but trying to earn their way. He is absolutely comparing them to the older brother, and he's saying this older brother 
actually has a greater challenge in order to follow God. Um, my mentor, Ellsworth Callis, uh, spoke here many times, and he's actually the first person that ever told me about Ocean Grove and that I should come here sometime. And he had a quote about this that I love. He says that the story of the older brother teaches us that it's easier to have a personal awakening in our life's pig pens than in our undisturbed routine. It's easier to wake up to God's grace if you're in the pig pen than it is if you're in the everyday routine. This is a challenge for us, for, for those who know God, who know the love of Christ, that it's easy to become complacent in the love of God. And this is the gift of desperation that I talked about if you were here on Sunday, that even though our lives aren't in a desperate place, even though we're not still in the pig pen, we absolutely have to remember that we're dependent on the grace of God, or we become the older brother and think maybe it was our work that earned us a place there. Um, to live in the Father's house means we have to continually check ourselves to make sure we know we didn't earn or deserve this. We're still dependent on the grace of God who runs to us, falls on our neck, and weeps and loves us. Jesus remakes this story because he wants to paint himself into it. He becomes the father in the story and shows us his grace. But God's goal isn't just to remake a story, it's to remake us. God wants to remake us. Our stories have a great beginning, a complicated middle, and then God wants a remake of the beginning, doesn't he? He wants that close relationship with us that he had on the very first day we knew him or heard about him. He wants that first love that we have for him, and that's absolutely possible, even for those of us that have either drifted or found ourselves in a place of judgment sometimes where we wonder about the people outside or just newly inside of God's grace. There's a beautiful pattern that goes on in this story. If you were here a couple of days ago, I told you intertextuality, that big word that we talked about, that's a text connecting with other texts. But there's another word we talked about that intratextuality is about other things interacting inside the text. It's like the difference between an interstate and an intrastate. So this story, Jesus absolutely goes back and intertextuality, he connects with Genesis, something outside the story, the story of Jacob and Esau. But he's also remaking his own story as he tells it. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the same story three times. This prodigal son story is the third telling of it. And he uses each time that he tells the story uh, to emphasize it a little more. Luke 15 is a series of remakes of relationships within the story. The first story Jesus tells these people in Luke 15 is the story of a hundred sheep. Do you know that one? And if one of them wanders away, won't the shepherd just go off and look for that one? And if it returns, won't he celebrate because what was lost is now found? And then he tells a story again. He tells a remake. A woman has 10 coins. If she loses one, won't she go looking for it? And if it's returned, won't she celebrate? And the third story is a remake of the first two. A man had two sons, and one of them not just rolled away, not just wandered away, ran away, shaming the family. And if he returns, won't the father rejoice and celebrate? Do you hear Jesus' remake of this theme over and over again? And each time he tells it, think about the math. One out of a hundred, that's important. One out of ten, wow, that's important. One out of two. And does, 
the, the worth of the thing involved becomes higher with each one. What's the worth of a sheep? Wow, what's the worth of a coin? What's the worth of a son? Jesus is heightening this story each time. Do you hear the remakes happening? I love that he's saying to these Pharisees and these scribes and to us, if someone can love a sheep, what about a son? Do you see what God is doing? He's saying to these scribes and Pharisees, I'll give anything for one of them. They're like a precious son to me, and I will absolutely go after them anytime. Jesus wants us all home, all of us. And that shapes how we see people both inside of God's family and God's church and people who are not yet there. It shapes the eyes that we have to see, longing for people to come to know God. It shapes the work we do with our own lives, our relationships. If God says, see that one, that's like a son. I absolutely want you to go after that one and help restore them to me. So there's another retelling, a little bit of this story that was done by Ernest Hemingway. And he told the story of a father and a teenage son who had a relationship with such struggles it was to the point of breaking. So the son ran away from home into the big city and the father followed, looking for his son. The father looked everywhere, this is Hemingway's story, the father looked everywhere in the city and searching for his rebellious son, but he could not find him. And finally, the father reached the great city of Madrid and knowing that he could not search the whole city, he took out an ad in the newspaper. And in Hemingway's story, the father places this ad. My dear son, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. And as Hemingway's story goes, the next day at noon in front of the newspaper office, hundreds of sons showed up ready for reconciliation and searching the crowd for the face of the Father. That's a good story. Good enough for a remake, right? It's being remade all the time. Jesus sending out this story through us, through our love, sending an ad to the world. My son, you may have run away, but all is forgiven. All is restored. Come home. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful today to be in your presence and in worship. We're thankful to be searching your word. We are only here because you have brought us home. We're so thankful for that. So today, Lord, restore to us our first love. Give us hearts that remember that we're here by your grace and not by our gifts. And then, Lord, give us eyes to see those who long for you. Lord, whose lives may be a bit of a mess, a bit of a pig pen, only because they have run far from you. But God, let us be the people who meet them at the edge of town. Help us to run and meet those who need to know you. Lord, give us eyes to see in the Father's heart. Help us to restore your world to you so that all the sons and daughters come home. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more about attending Bible study, worship, or additional programs offered by the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association, and for social media links, go to oceangrove.org.